Yeah. But yeah. I, I just, I don't care about a Pete Davidson robot. <laughs> and it's like basically King of Staten Island 2, except for he's a robot. Yeah, I actually would be okay with that. I would. Uh, that seems more appealing, like a, a robot that wants to do tattoos. Yeah, I mean, there's this war for Cybertron going on, but really my passion is drawing dicks on people. <laughs> Bill Burr plays a fire truck. <laughs> it writes itself, really. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. From San Diego, California, you are Keith Foster. You are Cassidy Robinson, and you are recording in an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yes, and today we're going to be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Uh, for the streaming homework, your assignment to me... And to the audience, whoever wants to participate, is the movie The Duelists from 1977, Ridley Scott's mm -hmm. debut. And that was uh, streaming on Pluto TV. Yeah, I actually ended up, um, the ads were annoying me. And it, have you, have you ever heard of, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it, Canopy? Yes, if you are a member of a local public library, most public libraries, but not all of them, but uh, if you go and ask them if they are uh, participating in Canopy, they will give you access to a streaming service. Yeah, you can, you can rent, I think it's five movies a month um for free just based off of your library card i heard about it and i originally looked into it when i first heard about it and san diego's like main public library wasn't set up for it yet um but they got set up for it and uh this was in their library so i was able to watch it without the ads which was nice yeah good cheat code i you know i sometimes forget the canopy's a thing but it is there and we yeah and i don't i don't know if they have i i don't know like you know how many movies they have or how extensive their catalog is um but right uh in this case it came through in a pinch yeah i don't know if it works the same way as as all of the other streamers where the distribution rights are constantly in flux and they have to keep some movies on and then give them up later and then back and forth or if it's just Canopy has access to a set amount of movies that are constantly updating. Yeah, I I'm not sure, but it it's a cool service. So if uh, if Canopy is available in your area, check it out. Yeah, just go to your public library and ask the librarian, and they'll give you the, the codes and the access to uh, to be able to watch it from your TV from home. Okay, so I had planned a segment idea. I came across this clip a long time ago in the television series Metal Evolution, and there's this great quote from Phil Anselmo of from Pantera, Pantera, 
talking about what makes his band stand out. And I thought about that quote in regard to film. So we'll play the quote, and then I will explain what I'm talking about. The late 80s, writing heavy metal songs, a lot of bands would save the money riff for the end or for the middle or whatever. But we saw that the money riff moved people. So it's like, why not make the whole damn song the money riff? You know, any riff that moved the people. It was like too infectious not to jump into that fracas with the people once we started playing. I kind of sprung this on you. Do you think you understand the concept? I think I do now. First, I I definitely misinterpreted you, and I thought you were talking about, like, scenes in movies that were, like, the money riff, but but then I was like, no, his quote is is literally the, you know, the whole song is the money riff, so I interpreted it as, what is a whole movie that plays like a money riff right like that that you're you're getting what you paid for from first frame to last frame right exactly whereas a number of films have a cool scene or have you know the money shot that's shown in the trailers but what movies out there are the cool scene is any scene from the movie and it doesn't have to be an action movie, although some of my picks are. And it, uh, mm. but you know, I kind of took Money Rift to be a little bit more fluid. Like it could be just any kind of stylistic flourish, or you know, the you no know, the thing that that a filmmaker would normally save or or build up to. You know, what are the few films we can think of that uh, have the confidence? to hit you over the head with that flourish over and over again without it getting old, getting tired, um, mm -hmm. and paying off every single time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so after I, I reinterpreted it, um, my list is a little smaller. If you don't take any of mine, I think, uh, I think I've got a pretty, pretty solid lineup. Okay, well, I'll let you go first then, so because I have a few extras to dip into if if we have doubles. Well, the the first one I thought of, I just think is like the no brainer. Duh, I mean, this whole movie is the money riff and it's metal as fuck. Uh, is Mad Max Fury Road? Sure, um, and we've talked about it, it recently. Just, yeah, it it starts in the middle of the action and it just is full throttle it, it the entire movie almost is an action sequence it's right. like one long action sequence there's only like a couple times the movie even lets you hold your head above the water to breathe that was the first one that I was like oh fuck yeah that whole movie is a money riff like yeah for sure it, it's just from beginning to end, it is solid action, but each action sequence is different and purposeful and as skillfully directed as the last. Yes, I concur. Um, and I think the thing that makes it exemplary 
of its style is the fact that it can do that. It can maintain these long set pieces that are sometimes like 20 minutes long without it ever seeming repetitious or boring mm-hmm. or uh, sensory overload. There's a ebb and flow to the set piece. There's a dramatic arc to how the action moves in that movie. And exactly. And and I that's that's why it works. Plays right? like a is symphony. He directs each action scene like it's not an action scene. Right. You know, like each moment has its purpose and they all have these sort of rising and falling actions within this larger framework of seemingly chaos, but uh man, it is just Beautifully choreographed yeah. Uh, movie. Yeah, there's nothing slapdash about it. All right, my first pick is The Raid Redemption. Ooh, hell yeah. And I've heard The Raid 2 is even better, but I still have not seen The Raid 2. Dog-earing that for future Netflix homework, because the same. Uh, but the, the, ra- the first raid is bad fucking ass. Right, and it's it's... Again, this extended set piece, and it's uh, the way that he uses the space and the setting. We go through all these levels of this tenement as these SWAT team members are working their way through these drug gangs, and it involves basically every kind of combat from weaponry, guns and ammunition, to martial arts, and it is brutal. And some of the best action choreography you'll ever see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I John Wick uh, was highly, uh, highly influenced by the Raid movies, I feel. And there's, there's, you know, just enough of a story element there to keep you invested. I would say, you know, probably the biggest influence on the raid would have, was probably Die Hard. Sure. Yeah, it has yeah. that kind of when Die Hard is at its height. Yeah. Um well there just this idea of this like enclosed location yeah. and so there's this kind of uh um, you have multiple uh, claustrophobia. Bosses. Yeah. Yeah. It has almost a video game logic to it, but um, not you know, not pandering to that. Yeah, I mean it. It's it doesn't feel like like you're missing out on anything because of the way that the story chooses to move through. It's it's just that is what the movie is. It's a mm-hmm. dynamic martial arts film. Uh, yeah, I mean it's given that there's something kind of inherently artificial about that genre. It always looks brutal and painful and bloody Mm -hmm. and grounded in some sort of physical reality, even if, you know, everyone can do these insane parkour slash martial art fight choreography as they're going through. And it like it never lets up. Uh, if you haven't seen the raid and you are a fan of movies like John Wick uh, and uh, Dread 3D, uh, which I was also heavily influenced by the raid, 
um, and has a similar kind of story structure, uh, definitely check out that movie. For sure. In fact, I believe those two movies came out around the same time. They were about a year apart or so. Were they? I mm, Okay, maybe. Um, okay, what is your second pick? My second pick is not an action movie, um, but is uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, okay. Uh, by Martin Scorsese. Um, and the reason I'm picking that one is because the whole movie is just sort of this debaucherous party. Uh, to the point where I think that is the point of the movie. I think you're supposed to get exhausted by, you know, someone living this lifestyle of just nonstop partying and, and drugs and sex. And, um, and the, the movie has this kind of repetitious tone to it, uh, that it, 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 it almost feels like variations on the same note, right? Like, mm-hmm. We're introduced to Jordy Belfort and his life, and it's just kind of the same cycle repeating over and over again. It just is increasing or decreasing, but um, but is essentially the same thing, just repeated. There's a kind of kaleidoscopic style yeah. of editing to it, or... Or uh, something sort of montage about it. Um, and you, you see that yeah. in other Scorsese films. Like I think of like the final big set piece in Goodfellas when he's oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. high on coke and he's paranoid about the helicopter. But he has to go home and he has to make the, the sauce and he has to pick up his brother from the airport. And he also <laughs> has to go and get the coke and from the other girlfriend and then... And yeah, it, it's it, kind of like that taking scene that for scene as what two and a half three hours? hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which again, uh, you would d- think d- would be exhausting, and I think it 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 almost gets to that point. I think the a couple things to help it is, I mean, it's a Martin Scorsese, so he knows what he's doing. There's great yes. per- performances all the way through, and it's really really funny. Like, I don't think that movie gets enough credit for being a comedy, because I think more than anything, that's what it is. And it's it's just a, you know, sort of a a cautionary tale uh, wrapped in this comedy bearers. Yes, absolutely. And and I also think it being exhausting is kind of the point. I think, uh, you know, I, I think the their form has a function mm-hmm. for that movie and uh uh yeah it just again it kind of it just starts off at 11 and it stays at 11 like the whole movie right yeah there's a, there's a few calmer moments here or there uh but they're really just kind of the cushion between the chaos yeah um yeah i that that's a great pick i have another leonardo dicaprio film in my list, and that is Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet. I almost picked that one. <laughs> I almost picked it. That's a movie that never lets up from the very opening sh- sequence where we have the the Greek chorus as done by a newscaster. And we, you know, slowly pull into the the frame of the television, which envelops the screen, and then blast wherein 
Basil Ehrman land where, uh, you know, it's, it, it takes place in contemporary. Uh, I, I don't know exactly where it's supposed to take place, but the beaches of somewhere. Um, probably Los uh, Angeles, but I Venice? don't think it was shot in Los Angeles. But I mean, in the movie, it's Verona, right? Uh, because yeah, that's the um, fucking Shakespeare, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I mean, even the the romance sequences in that film are played with a heavy amount of of style. Yeah, and this is this. Is, this was, I think, the movie where Boz Lerman was like, oh, I just want to do this forever. I just want to make movies that feel like music videos for the rest of my life. Right. Yeah. I mean, he'd only made uh, Strictly Ballroom before that, um, which is a relatively sober film compared to the rest of his work. But it, uh, you know, had moments of of what he does. Um, mm. And I think that of... His most well-known work, Romeo plus Juliet, works the best. You know, it helps yeah, to have that Shakespearean structure and the the Greek mm -hmm. tragedy of it all. But I, I, I think you know everything from the costume design to the to the quick cuts and the extreme camera work throughout the movie. Everything is stylistically of a piece, and it seems to be like particularly uh, plugged into sort of the Generation X MTV moment. Kind of a perfect film as far as I'm concerned. And I think that it's... I agree. It is the whole damn movie's the money riff. Yeah, it is it is a beautiful... It's a beautiful movie. Uh, I, I agree. I think it is... It is by far my favorite Boz Lerman film. Um because of all these things and because the story, the story of Romeo and Juliet is so ingrained in us that, you know, as as long as you have the main beats, uh, you've got it. You know what I mean? And, and so it allows for all of this style. And I think, it, you know, it's one of the better possible. Uh, one of the better postmodern Shakespeare adaptations. Yeah. So what is your last selection? Okay. This one, I might have to defend a little bit. I don't, I don't know. We'll see what your take is on it. Um, my last pick is the Grand Budapest Hotel. Okay. Uh, and the reason I'm picking that is because I feel like it is, Sort of Wes Anderson at his most Wes Anderson. So if we think about like what's the money shot, you know, it, there's all these AI fake trailers of what if Wes Anderson directed Lord of the Rings or whatever going around right now. And I feel like this is the movie that they're parodying with that, right? Uh, yeah. It's him, it's him at his most storybook quirkiness without being stop motion animation it, it sort of just encapsulates everything that you would think of as commercially viable for wes anderson and wrapping it into a package and it's that from beginning to end you know whereas like his earlier work is a little more grounded mm -hmm. you know 
as much as he gets parodied, it feels like this sort of feverish culmination of style for him. And to the point where it's like, where does he go from here? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously very interested in, uh, um, his new one, Atomic Crater or Crater City or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed French Dispatch. Yeah. I, I enjoy all of his movies, but this one just feels like, I'm paying money to see a Wes Anderson movie. This is what I expect to see, right? And that's how I'm interpreting Money Shot. Yeah, I, I I would concur. I think of all of his movies outside of his animation, um, his animated films, it is from start to finish, every shot is hyper-composed. Yeah. I mean, everything you could say about the movie is exemplary in all of his movies, but that one especially. I think it's it's sort of a stylistic zenith of that thing he's known for doing. Yeah. Him It it feels like a pop up storybook movie and uh yeah, exactly. I, I would actually I think it'd be kind of fun to see him maybe pull back from that a little bit now. Because uh, I, I, yeah. I think he's he's kind of done that. And I think uh, you know, his movies that I've seen since then, it almost feels like it's kind of spinning his tires in the mud stylistically. Uh, Cause it, it just kind of feels like he already reached whatever that was. Right. And I, and I think that it, like all of the movies we've been talking about, it's able to, to keep that level of archness and yeah. production quality and uh, style and style without it mm -hmm. ever, Without, without it, wearing out its well. Yeah, without it coming up, without uh, dropping off the story stuff. Because I, I actually think yeah. it is one of his more subtly more emotional films. Like, underneath all of the pink candy-colored facade that the movie's putting up front, or, or all of the quick, fast comedy and, and everything, it's, you know, the parable that it's going through. Uh, kind of talks about something a lot darker, <laughs> and it it it's totally, subtly yeah. uh, a a pretty subversive movie. But um, I'm definitely interested to see his movie that comes out this year. And I, yeah, I would I would think at this point he I would like to see him kind of pull back. In a way, Moonrise Kingdom was kind of that. Like it was, it yeah. definitely had archness to it as well. But in a lot of ways, it felt like a return to Rushmore. Um, yeah, I can, I can see that. It's a little more, uh, uh, grounded than some of his other stuff. Yeah. And a little bit more contained, but, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, that's a good pick. And my final pick, it looks like the last one that I can pick actually is <laughs> the film, the sweet smell of success. Uh, this was a noir ish movie that uh, came out in 1957 starring Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis and it uh, about a muckraker journalist who's trying to get a scoop in the last minute and he we were sort of following him, he's played by Tony Curtis and he's trying to talk to all of these different parties and while also dealing with his personal life, which is sort of entangled in this uh, story that he's trying to put together. And um, it 
uses it kind of puts the camera almost in his perspective not in a uh first person perspective but we feel the movie mm-hmm. through him and there's there's a sort of energy and motion to the film that's constantly moving it it takes place in a, a short period of time and that anxiety that he's feeling about mm. getting through the story is is uh, mirrored in the filmmaking itself and it's hyper stylized it's beautiful black and white you know chiaroscuro lighting and and all of that stuff but also very clever camera work um and even when it's doing like a traditionally covered um conversation set piece or something like that with like camera over the shoulder reverse shot stuff uh the director knows like it'll be an over the shoulder shot during the middle of a conversation then somebody will come and come into frame from one side and the camera will like slowly tilt over and notice that person and that's what i mean by like there's this constant perspective in hmm. in the movie there's something very modern feeling about it even though it's very much of its time um interesting it's funny it has this like fast jazzy sort of soundtrack and the whole thing just feels energetic your description of it actually made me think of another one that would i think fit this category um uh it you just your description made me think of uncut gems um oh sure yeah uh, which is very just anxiety from beginning to end i'm sure it's very different but um just your description of it made me think of that. Yeah, I mean, it has a a similar way of uh, capturing, you know, a person moving quickly through the story um, with sort of the the candle burning at both ends. Cool. That is uh, that is our list. If you have any movies that you would say where the whole movie is the money riff uh drop them in our email and we'll we'll read those out at uh mcguffinpot at gmail.com but let's move on to our reviews of the week and we'll start with guardians of the galaxy volume three uh guardians of the galaxy volume three we've got a whole lot of mcu-ness to get to this point um, but I think it does a pretty good job of, of kind of standing on its own. The Guardians, after all of the battles with Thanos and Endgame and, and all of that stuff, find themselves living in the celestial head of nowhere, just sort of settling, kind of stable. But Peter Quill, Star-Lord, is uh, still... You know, he's still really upset from the death of Gamora uh, during, um, was it? Infinity War, I believe. Infinity War. I get Infinity War and Endgame mixed They're up. They're the same movie. Um, basically. Um, even though, like, at least one movie in a year happened between them. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, so he's still upset by the loss of his lover um, even though she is back, but she's from an alternate timeline where she has no memories of her time with the Guardians. They are 
inexplicably assaulted by Adam Warlock, uh, played by uh, Will Poulter. Yes. Who leaves Rocket Raccoon in critical condition, uh, and they discovered that he has a device, a, a, a kill switch on his heart. So they have to dig into his past and find out how he was created to try and find a code to, to disable the kill switch on his heart so that they can actually treat him. Um, and in all of that, there is uh, the high evolutionary is sort of masterminding all of this stuff, uh, played by Chukwudi Ibuji, who is Rocket Raccoon's creator and this sort of Dr. Moreau type character in space, uh, trying to create the perfect manimal. And Rocket Raccoon uh, didn't have the body he wanted, but showed signs of intelligence beyond his programming. And so he is on this quest to retrieve Rocket Raccoon to dissect him. And, you know, conflict ensues with the Guardians of the Galaxy trying to to save their friend from certain death. Right. So this is how many years ago was Guardians 2? I think it was like 2018 or so. Uh, yeah, I think so. It was, it was a, yeah, that sounds about right. It was, um, it was a little bit. Right. I feel like, you know, this is, um, James Gunn came on to the MCU to make Guardians of the Galaxy almost a decade ago. And mm -hmm. with Guardians 2 and now this being the third in the, in a trilogy, I mean, if they're feel this one feels like something like a bookend. Like, it feels like, yeah, yeah. they could kind of keep going with these movies, but it's not going to be the same anymore. And I the, feel like... This is the end of the Guardians of the... Of James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy as, as we have known them. Yes. And it, there's a finality to this story. It's always, at least thematically, alluded to throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it's pretty easy for me to say this is probably the best MCU movie I've seen for a, a grip of films now. I can't really place the last time I've enjoyed one this much or was it as consistently invested as I was in this one? Probably since yeah. Guardians 2, if not you know, I I think Shang Chi had its moments. I think that one is well, that, is is a lot of fun. But you know, if we're if so we're playing the, thing, the uh, is, you know where you rank them game or whatever, which is dumb and annoying, and nobody should do it. I only say this well, to say that I think there is a qualitative difference in what James Gunn is doing here in terms of storytelling and in terms yeah. of where the risks he's willing to take with his characters and that, keeping I, so things character thing. focused while not, mm -hmm. not letting the extra uh, MCU Easter eggy stuff clutter the narrative. Well, I mean, okay. To, to touch on a few things, first of all, as far as that goes, I think Gunn has always been the best at that, at, at, 
managing to maintain an emotional story while while continuing to pepper in this sort of like in-universe stuff. Um, I, I think, you know, the Guardians movies have always resonated the most with me I because of that, partially. Um, but man, just what you're talking about with the qualitative difference, it, it was like sitting down and watching it, I was like, oh yeah, that's what Marvel movies are supposed to feel like. Like, like I haven't felt this in a while and I've enjoyed their stuff fine. You know, I, I still don't think they've like reached DC depths of, of just nonsense. Um, but for the most part, their post in game work has been pretty, uh, okay. Like, sure, this is fine. You know, this is passing or it has a good first two thirds and then it falls apart in the third act or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it was just so refreshing to sit and just like experience these characters as characters and be sucked along their journey. And in a way that I just have not felt from the MCU in a long, long time. And and I think, you know, maybe it's because there is this finality to it. Maybe it's because he as a director, I think, had this kind of vision for what he wanted out of these movies uh, in a way that we haven't really seen in the MCU before. Like, this is the first one that I would say feels like a consistent trilogy of films. Like, you can watch these movies outside of having to do a rewatch of everything else and still, you know, for the most part, get everything you need to. Yeah, I'd say the Gamora stuff is probably the most connected to outside of this mm -hmm. universe. And I'm a little mixed on her reinterpretation here. I, th I think there's some interesting character work to be had with that. There's a, like they're playing role reversal because she's mm -hmm. now working with um, Sylvester Stallone's space. Yeah. The outlaw the crew, whatever they're called. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is who uh, Quill was originally associated with. And now she's aloof and he's invested. So they're, they're kind of playing around with some stuff. And I guess my only beef with her reappearing is that it kind of undercuts the death from Infinity War. It makes that just feel, I mean, this is comic books where we should be well used to just characters coming and going all the time, but. And and I actually kind of I, I don't agree with that because I think what's nice here is they let that death matter, right? Like it, she is from a different universe. She has different memories. Like she is essentially at this point a different Gamora. Like and and I like that they actually play that. I like that it isn't just oh, let's re-recruit Gamora back into the crew because I used to be in love with her. Uh, you know, she has her own perspective and agency on on this situation, and she's not interested in it. And uh, I, I actually think that, yeah, it's maybe not the, you know, normal type of closure when a character dies, but she is different, and they play her different. And I, I, I like that. They, they don't... They don't um, 
you know, they don't rise of Skywalker her death where, well, now it just doesn't matter because she's back. Like she she's essentially not all of that relationship they had at, with her and the crew is gone. Right. And between her and Quill, there's like a so close but so far away quality to it. Um, yeah. And it, it plays pretty well for the most part. <laughs> Obviously, you know, we're kind of talking around it. I think the heart and soul of the movie is the story with Rocket Raccoon. Yeah, and I didn't say this in my description, but um, as he's, you know, laying on this medical table where we experience these, these, these flashbacks of his origin story. Right. And how he was picked up by the high evolutionary and uh, there, there's this whole backstory with his friends, uh, Lila, Floor, and Teef. And, and it, and it kind of plays like a space opera version of like Watership Down or Plague Dogs or something like that. It's uh, very emotional. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, he was, he was always one of the more interesting characters. Bradley Cooper brings a lot to it as a voice actor. But... Mm-hmm. And the animation for him has always been really good. But, uh, yeah. you know, we see this multidimensionality to him that we haven't been given before. And, yeah, you know, in comic book world, this would be like a rocket story. In fact, he's kind of more yeah. the protagonist than even Quill. And I think sometimes Quill gets a little buried in the narrative. Like, uh, he... His prominence as the leader of the group is very much just in rank only, not not in terms of like prominence in well, the narrative. It's especially this version of Quill, right? Like we've never seen him as a character more lost. He was yeah. always kind of the the one who's like, "Come on, guys, we gotta stay together to finish this mission." But um, you know, he really. At- because he's mourning Gamora, he really just doesn't care until uh, Rocket is, is, you know, mortally wounded. And so, it, yes, he his character arc is sort of coming back to the character that he was. Right. Yeah. And, and but for the most part, he's more there as a function then sure. yeah. even some of the other side characters. I mean, I think, you know, Drax and uh, uh, Nebula and uh, the his sister, whatever. All of them have more emotional arcs in the movie than than he does. Uh, and they're, well, I, I, maybe it's because we've and, done so much with Quill already, given part one and mm-hmm. two are like very much dedicated to him and his origin. And this one, he's more there to almost as a support to, well, to the rest of I, it. I actually think, to that note, to that end, I actually think of all the Guardians movies, this one plays the most as a team movie, right? Where where all the, the characters feel like they have a compelling story within, even if it doesn't take center stage, like... Like you said, I, I think Rocket is, you know, is the main character here. Um, like in in Guardians 2, I felt like, you know, Drax kind of got pushed to the back burner for some of the newer characters and, and more screen time for Yondu. And 
Um, you know, in the first one, it, it's really mostly about uh, Peter Quill as the main character. This is the first one that actually feels like they're a team and, and the whole team kind of gets some story purpose. And also a uh, purpose, you know, individual purpose within each set piece. And I think yeah. when when they have to break into something or when they're trying to rescue each other out of these these clutch situations, um, you know, there's a lot of creativity in the set pieces that kind of keep them lively and and they do things with the characters we haven't seen before, especially Groot. Yeah. Groot, get, Groot gets to do some really cool uh, action stuff in this movie. Yeah. Oh, and uh, and Mantis as well, who in the, you know, the last time we saw her, she was just, you know, she was just kind of this lackey for uh, Kurt Russell's character. And, and this time we actually get to kind of see her shine as a team member and... And she gets, you know, again, I just think this feels feels the most uh, like a team uh, ensemble dynamic. Yeah, and her and Drax have a of have a fun chemistry in the movie. Yeah, did you watch uh, this side note? Did you watch the holiday special, the Guardians holiday special? No, Mantis and Drax are kind of the main focus of that, and so if you enjoyed their chemistry in this, I think it, you know, it's a fun watch around uh, Christmas time. Okay. When it comes to the villain, he's he's a good enough villain. I think the actor is doing a lot of great work. Uh, Chukwudi Uji, yeah. you know this idea that he kind of plays this this sort of dictator type, and he's trying to create mm-hmm. these societies in mold of his own values. It almost reaches uh, when they when they enter. Earth 2 or whatever they call it, uh, the place where it looks just like Earth, but with animals. Um, There's (laughs) like almost some satire there that I wish they had just go a little bit more. Like, I see what you're doing. Push that a little farther. But the movie, by that point, we're like really kind of wrapping up. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't quite show as much as it's of of what it's intending in that it's like mm-hmm. but there's almost some clever satire there um but he's a good villain uh one thing i'll say of of these maybe all the marvel movies to date that i can think of that i've seen this is probably the hardest pg13 would you agree uh yeah, I I would agree. I mean, uh it famously has the first F bomb drop in the MCU. Um they you know, they've kind of been talking about that, but it's also it's, you know, just tonally it it has this for, you know, for the majority of its runtime it is a pretty grim tone. Um it doesn't shy away from from showing some pretty violent imagery uh especially towards animals action sequences don't feel like they're kind of holding anything back this is james gunn you know i'm a huge fan of him as a writer and director uh and i think you know i loved the suicide squad um but i think i like watching him work within these sort of uh constraints though because I, I think he can come up with some, not more clever, um, but 
like I, I think it does push it. I you know it, it feels like sort of an eighties PG thirteen um, with the violence it shows on screen and uh, just it, it feels like it's the movie it wants to be without really uh, uh, sacrificing anything. There's a little bit of the. Uh can take the boy out of trauma, but you can't take the trauma out of the boy kind of kind sure, of situation yeah. here. Um, I'm not, I don't want to oversell it. it. You know, this isn't like, you know, we're still within the world of like a, a Disney produced Marvel movie, but absolutely. But yeah. given that there was a few times where I was like, Oh shit, you're going to go there. Okay. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Sometimes it's a, I think there's, it, it can be a little problematic. Like, uh, not necessarily the fact that he's willing to use more violence. That's fine. But there's a, a disconnect uh, between like the types of violence or what violence means from scene to scene because we're holding the sanctity of life very dear into the pause of a, you know, dying rocket raccoon where every mm. second counts, but then there's two genocides in this movie. And I don't yeah. mean that yeah. uh, figuratively. And it kind of <laughs> glosses it over. Like, um, like where it's more about the spectacle than the, the millions of people who just died in that scene sequence. And then, you know, we see them mowing down are mowing through these guards um, who are not just, you know, robots or weird looking aliens, but are very like human like in a lot of ways. And I feel like the, the violence in those sequences is a little flippant compared to the, the level, the, the violence with the characters that we know and love. And mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a, here it's fun and here it's tragedy. And, and yeah, I, I can see what you're talking about. And I think it, it, you probably wouldn't notice it if they didn't make the tragedy so tragic. Right. If the, if the um, whole thematic arc of the movie, the, like the strongest thematic arc of the movie uh, is, is dealing with like, I think James Gunn just won an award from like, some like vegan PETA ish organization for uh, yeah yeah it was from it was from PETA they yeah. they like uh, made named it like the animal rights movie of the year or so far or something sure I mean I you know what you know what if you walk into a eugenics lab and start fucking blowing up Nazis I don't know I don't know what I'm saying right now uh, I'm <laughs> well not that's what I'm saying it's like the movie gets into a little bit of slippery territory or does, or it's biting off a little bit more than it can chew when it dips its toes into social commentary. Like, it's great at emotional. It's great at yeah. personal character stuff. But when it's trying to say a little bit more than that, I feel like it's a little inconsistent. No, I, I think that's valid. Yeah. It, it wasn't enough to bother me but i i can see i could see yeah i know what you're talking about but the fact that it the emotional arc is so strong 
and the fact that um you know the way that it cuts back and forth from the flashbacks rocket story into the the break in you know that's always fun uh, i love a mm-hmm. a good heist kind of narrative and i wish more you know big tentpole franchisey things uh utilize those classic forms a little bit more often it, and the comedy it, is still there given the fact that the movie Yes. is dealing like juggling so many tonal balls in the air i think that it is still it still maintains you know the fun loving advent space adventure stuff that we like from this crew yeah you 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 feel the stakes but there is still levity there's still jokes there's still a lot of humor um a lot of you know james gunn's very quirky oddball uh sensibility um also i think this movie integrates the sort of uh kevin feige third third act action mandate better than a lot of them as well like it feels like a natural it feels like the 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 big sort of grand finale is a little more natural than some of the other movies like uh for example ant-man quantumania where it felt like well here's just a battle sequence that kind of comes out of nowhere. This movie always feels a little more intimate and personal. And because of that, you know, the, the final conflict feels, I think a little more earned. Yeah. I mean, I'm still inclined to say it's 20 minutes too long, just as a movie in general. <laughs> uh, and I think most of that you can trim off the end. Um, there's a point in the movie when I'm, I feel like we've reached an actual ending and uh, then we decide to just fly some spaceships into stuff for a little bit longer. There's like three or four false climaxes before we reached an actual conclusion. We probably use like one or two instead of five or six, but I get it. It is what it is like it. Uh, well, and, and, and also, I, I'm going to disagree with you on that. I feel like at a certain point, the way this movie is, it, it is built around, you know, this whole, is Rocket going to die or isn't he? Can they save him? Who, you know, uh, uh, story. I feel like you do need this sort of ending because it it feels like the team's kind of split up you know, through a lot of it. And I feel like you do need this come together action sequence. Like I, I, I feel like it's right. earned. I, it, I, well, it's yeah. intentionally built in. They, 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 they split oh, the team up so that they have an excuse to have each faction of the team have its own big explosion. set piece. Um, and then, but, and then they come together and have another one. Like that's what I'm talking but, about. Yeah, that's what like, I'm saying. Like you need, like I feel like you need that in this movie. It is, it's you know, it is their last hurrah. So I, I, I disagree that it's too long. I, I appreciated all of the uh, CGI battle nonsense. Two and a half hours. Okay. Two and a half hours. We, we it's still <laughs> thirty minutes shorter uh, uh, than Bo is afraid, <laughs> and. <laughs> And a, a lot more uh, quippy and paced. I enjoyed it, but there was a point where it's like, 
like, oh, the logical ending already happened. So now we're just here for the fireworks show. Okay. I think in a movie like this, the fireworks show is necessary. I, I agree with you. In a lot of Marvel movies, it's not, or at least to the extent that they build it in. In this one, I, I felt like it needed it. It needed that catharsis. If you say. Um, I say. I say you're being a grump on that one. I'm going to give the movie a B plus. I liked it a lot. It's not without its faults. Everything that I like in the Guardians stuff, the Guardians movies, this has some of my favorite Guardians stuff. And it leaves on a a nice note. And, you know, I've, I've heard, I've seen some people online saying, like, if you, if after this film you want to check out of MCU, you can now. And it almost kind of feels yeah. that way. But, yeah, I think this is great space opera action comedy with a heart. You've talked me down from an A to an A minus. Because uh, I do agree with what you're saying about the the sort of thematic messaging with the violence. Um, I, I get that. Uh, and yeah, it, it, you know, it has a few little flaws. But um, overall, I think this movie's a blast. It's the most fun I've had with a Marvel movie in a long time. Uh, and it it just warms my heart that James Gunn was able to sort of complete this trilogy and 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 give these characters the send-off that I, I feel like they deserve. This has always been my favorite uh movie franchise within the MCU writ large. And uh it was just a, a lot of fun. Uh and and I think yeah just th- probably the the best kind of ending you could hope for with something like this. So I, I'm giving it an A-. All right. Let's move on then uh, to our streaming homework, which you watched on Canopy and I watched on Pluto TV. And that is The Duelists. Uh, this is a film that was released in 1977. Uh, this is the debut from Ridley Scott who in 1979 uh, would come to international prominence with Alien. This movie takes place in early 1800s France at the end of the Napoleon era. And I'll just, I'll read the the plot info that it has here on IMDb because they'll do a better job than I can. But it says, due to a minor perceived slight, mild-mannered lieutenant Hubert is forced into a duel with a hot-headed Irrational Lieutenant Farad, the disagreement ultimately results in scores of duels spanning several years. So, David Keith Carradine Carradine. plays Hubert, and uh, Harvey Keitel plays his nemesis, Gabriel Farad. And we kind of get the idea that one of them has more of an allegiance to Napoleon, whereas the other is sort of working just generally within the French ranks and Keith Carradine's character mm. is kind of playing it more politically and waiting to see how these factions of power overcome during these fraught wars. And there's a 
personal vendetta between the two. They keep bringing them together about every five or so years. We learned a lot about the rules of duels. And apparently, if you don't win in such a way, you can just walk away and come back to it at any time. Like one of those Grandmaster chess games that uh, you yeah, kind of come back there, to there's... and just make your move and then leave for however long before you come back. There's kind of this, like, almost Highlander quality to it, right? Because they'll get in these duels and then something will happen and one of them can't continue for whatever reason. And then, uh, uh, you know, they get too hurt or, or whatever. Um, uh, and then through time and circumstance, they're sort of split apart and just move on with their lives. But then every, like you said, five or six years, uh, they'll be in the same town at the same time. And particularly Harvey Keitel's character you know, if he ever gets a whiff that Hubert is in town, you know, he seeks him out and challenges him to another duel to to to, to keep it going. Um, yeah, there, this like lifelong feud. Yeah, it it almost seems like there's this almost friendly rivalry between the two. Like, even though the intent is to kill each other, mm-hmm. there is. It seems like they go to extra length that it's the fairest fight that they that they can perceive. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's you know, it's about honor, not bloodshed. Right. right. So uh, to 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 do anything less than give your opponent every possible opportunity to kill you would be dishonorable. And through that, it leads to this, you know, kind of intimacy between the two characters, like you get this hint that they, because another part of it is Hubert won't give the reason for the duel. I think, you know, he's not maybe even entirely sure the reason himself, but it's this sort again, it's, he's sort of honor bound to keep, to keep it secret between them. And this secret leads to this weird kind of intimacy. It, it, it almost feels like, you know, this fling, you know, when you hear your exes in town and it's like, oh, I don't want to run into them because it's going to be trouble. But in this case, it literally is like, well, I now we have to fight to the death. Right. Or we're going we're gonna to give that an, another go and see how it goes this time around. Um, yeah. Yeah. And... I mean, through it, we see the extent of the end of the Napoleon era and these different wars that uh, lead up to his exile, the establishment of a new monarchy after that. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a there's sort of a historical quality to the film. I mean, it's, it's a historical costume drama. Well, and, and one of the reasons uh, this movie's been on my radar for a while, because um, it gets a lot of praise for the accuracy of the like of the duels themselves and, and specifically like the fight choreography. Um, it's I mean, there's a little showmanship. It's it's flourished a little bit, but for the most part, it's it's depicted fairly uh you know, with as minimal stagecraft as possible versus, 
you know, like these romantic sort of swashbuckly movies, um, you know, where you get these big epic set pieces with the sword. You know, some of these duels are, you know, under 30 seconds long. Like they're, they're right. so quick. Um, so I, I think that's one of the reasons I was interested in seeing it is it has this level of sort of historical accuracy to it that you don't necessarily see with a lot of movies these days. Right. It, it's not Zorro. No. Uh, or, or like, uh, an, an old, uh, pirate movie or something like that. Like it is, you know, yeah. it, it's, there's, there's not a lot of stylic, stylistic flourish to the actual choreography. It's, it's very quick. And yeah, like you said, like the, 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 the fighting itself, the duels themselves are really more just a conduit of kind of telling both of these stories between these two, these two, uh, leading men and this, mm. uh, sort of challenge of masculinity and challenge of honor and government allegiances. The movie it reminded me a great deal of is Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, which came out a couple of years before yeah. this. And both movies okay. are painstakingly taking a lot of effort into making things looking, looking historically accurate. You know, both are very stylized in a way in their lack of style. Yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. It's it's like it, it's like the the style is history text, you know, right? In and trying to make that feel as lived in and and real, because you know when you read about stuff like this, it's it's so easy to, you know, this in a book could be one chapter, you know, of of these. If this was say a history text of this duel that these lifelong nemesis that just keep encountering each other every five or six years to duel, it could be very dry. And I think the idea is, well, let's try to see that as lived out as possible. Yeah. And I, I well, you know, beyond just the, the historical context, um, you know, being kind of set around the same time periods, I think the cinematography here is very influenced by, what Kubrick did in Barry Lyndon and these very painterly tableaus, uh, moving tableaus, yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, um, natural lighting. Uh, we get to see a lot of this French countryside. Yeah. Um, with, with, like you said, it, it feels very painterly. It feels very scenic. Yeah. I mean, literally the, these, these sequences that take place, uh, when the, we have these groups of soldiers who are having discussions or whatever inside their their quarters. It looks like a romantic painting from the era. Um, totally, yeah. And and I think the the use of natural light as opposed to you know bathing it in uh, light fixtures and making sure every you know inch of the frame is uh, uh, is well lit or evenly lit. Um, letting the the shadows or letting people sort of emerge out of the shadow and keeping the the light source as natural as possible 
uh, I think is something that both movies are are doing, and as well as they're they're both kind of dealing in similar masculine stereotypes or archetypes, rather, where people are behaving in a in a way just because of the way that they are perceived in society or how they wish to be perceived. Um, well, and and the the funny and I I can't speak to Barry Lyndon. Uh, that one's actually been on my list for a while. I, I'll, I'll watch it one day. But um, but in in this, uh, you know, how many we we see it primarily from Keith Carradine's perspective. We don't get a lot of interior um knowledge with Harvey Keitel. Right. He's he's kind of always this like prominent just sort of lurking figure in the background. But, you know, Keith Carradine has so many opportunities to walk away from this situation for, you know, to, he can report it to the courts or, uh, you know, at one point his friend just tells him like, avoid the guy and get promoted so that he can't challenge you to a duel. And he just, he tries to put as much distance between it when literally like, you know, he could just say, no, I'm not meeting you and I'm right. not meeting you up for this duel. Um, but his honor demands it. But it's it's this interior sense of honor. It's it's not um, I mean, and that that's kind of what the, the climax comes down to is it's like there's no one actually holding them to any of these standards. And if. If he walked one way, he could absolutely just say whatever the fuck he wanted and and like no one will hold him accountable to it. It is this this self-motivated uh, sense of honor, you know, that countless times could lead to his death. And almost does. I think you can definitely see what Ridley Scott brings to movies. You know, his his oh, eye yeah. for the monumental and mm-hmm. his kind of stoicism, uh, especially in his early work. If you look at like this to Alien to Blade Runner, Le- uh, Legend, all those movies, while tackling completely different genres, approach everything with this same kind of technical prowess and this uh, heavy hand of a auteur director on top of it. Now, he kind of loses his way <laughs> later on in his career, or, you know, peaks and valleys. Um, sure, yeah. Uh, I think he's still a very talented filmmaker, but... Well, and, and I mean, he, here's the thing. No matter what, uh, you know, the guy who gave us both Alien and Blade Runner, there are... Many, 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 many directors who never achieve these, you know, who will never achieve those heights. Yeah. And, you know, in the 70s and early 80s, like, and I'm counting this among them. I I really enjoyed this movie. Um, Like you said, like, he's just operating on another level at this time. Yeah. And, you know, for him to, you know, I don't know if decline is the right word, um, but. He's young and hungry here. He has something to say. Whereas, you know, later on in his career, it just feels more like a career. Yeah. I think he's uh, often, you know, there's there's some filmmakers who just 
are not great at being able to distinguish good screenplays from bad ones. That's what hurts him the most, is he doesn't wait for the good pitches. And he's, I mean, there's some things he does for career reasons. Um, and there's other things he does because there's like legacy kind of reasons. But I mean, even within sure. his latter years, you know, you think of Gladiator. It's a good, it's yeah. a very good movie. Not the best movie, but a good movie. Um, you think of uh, The Martian, which was a lot of fun. Solid. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think, and even in his bad movies, like his later Alien films, or... Well, there, there's always something. Or The Counselor. There, right, you know, like... <laughs> you know, there's, yeah, there, it's still, it's still made by a visionary director, and it's still made from a consummate professional. And and someone who has a, a, a like you said, a technical grasp. Not every director has an eye like he has. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and you were saying about, you know, the the alien sequels and stuff or like the Prometheus movies. I, Prometheus is kind of going through a weird resurgence right now online. Um, but, you know, like as silly as Alien Covenant was, there's still this interesting core with David, right? Uh, there, There's still... There's still an interesting story within it, even if sometimes it gets bogged down by all of this other stuff. Right. Yeah, he's he's not immune to making bad movies and he's made plenty. But but I think that he's he's a director I'm always gonna be interested to see what he does because I know that he can do this. That and yeah. that he had a streak of films that were better than anybody at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, at least from from this through Thelma and Louise, it's like almost no duds. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's <laughs> hard to argue with that that run. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'd say uh, this is not a fast film. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who, if they watch this, they will call it boring. Um. But I think that if you're invested in the historicity, if you if you're mm. if you like costume dramas, if you like seventies films, and if you were a fan of Barry Lyndon, uh, you know clearly the the influence of the fingerprints of that movie is all over this, and Kubrick in general, I think is probably his most prominent influence at this point in his career. Yeah, I he mean, better defines this, his his own distinction later on. But like mm -hmm. this movie in particular, it's like he's very much coming from the school of Kubrick, uh, which would make sense because Kubrick was making his movies in England at that time. It's well known, well documented that Kubrick always wanted to make a Napoleon movie that he never got to make. So you kind of get that here too. Um, yeah, which is interesting because um, all the Napoleon stuff is just sort of happening in the background. Right. It's uh, incidental. You don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I mean, I, I want to speak to what you said about this movie being boring. I, I think, you know, if you're going into this expecting um, an action movie, swashbuckling yeah. <laughs> pirates, 
it's not that. You're right. You know, it is it is a, a costume drama for sure. Um, but I think he does that very well. And it and and all of the character stuff, uh, you know, it, it has this interesting pacing because we kind of just moved from duel to duel to duel to duel. So it actually was less slow and boring than I was afraid it was going. Yeah, it kind of moves in chapters. Um, yeah, and and I think that structure gives it like I would say this is probably, you know, it's like the the people who see Blade Runner expecting Star Wars. Right. Like, yeah, uh, uh, I'd say it's a similar level to that. With I would agree with that for the most part. I think there's less genre stuff to kind of hold hold on to like even if you love alien and blade runner like i think sure. this movie could be more of a difficult watch for the casual viewer but yeah but if like i said if you love movies from the 70s if you love great cinematography because it's beautiful to look at every single scene there's is immaculately shot um if you like uh, cool, interesting fight choreography, like even though the the duels are short, it, because they feel so real, it, it it feels sort of like something you haven't seen in a movie. Yeah, and, and also there is uh, two great performances carrying you through. Yeah, Harvey Keitel is interesting. Harvey interesting. Kattel. I mean, you you know you have. You have these two American actors playing among English actors, and it's all supposed to take place in 1800s <laughs> France, but you can kind of hand wave that away. Yeah, I didn't. The, at the very beginning with uh, Harvey Keitel, I was a little like, not even going to try an accent. Um, but I really, it dropped off very quickly how much I cared. Like, it, it was just like, yeah, sure. Whatever. Like, yeah, this is, it, that's something that, you know, that type of accuracy is something we pay more attention to now than they used to at a point in time. Well, it it's just interesting that, like, there's so much attention to historical detail everywhere else uh, except dialect. It, it, right. It's just a, a little strange at first, but, like, once you get kind of into the groove of the movie, like I said, I, I didn't notice it anymore. Yeah, I didn't either. And I think both of the performances are strong. Um, you know, they get the core of their emotional truths. They, you know, they're yeah. they're they're playing it with interiority even if they're uh, not Keith even if they're not uh super convincing as, you know, as friends. Yeah, yeah, the the what's more important is the how they're going about interacting with the world. Yeah, Keith Carradine's great. I just recently watched um, Deadwood for the first time, and oh man, he's so good in it. Yeah, he's always one of those actors you don't, you forget about until you see him again, and you're like, oh yeah, you were really good. And you know, the, a fairly young Harvey Keitel here, uh, but mm -hmm. he, you know, he plays that kind of hot-headed force of nature kind of thing that he does really well here um yeah so you almost you almost kind of feel like two fairly different acting styles uh at play yeah. as well mm -hmm. like i i can't say for certain i've never talked to either of them about their process but 
feels like Carradine is more of a rehearsal theater kind of guy, whereas Keitel is more of mm. that New York instinctual New York style, yeah, like Brando methody kind of guy. Totally. Um so yeah, I I enjoyed this quite a bit. Yeah, same. Uh for the next episode, the uh streaming homework we're going to do is the Netflix documentary called Pamela a Love Story about Pamela Anderson. It was released on the platform earlier this year and we're going to catch up with that. And if anybody has anything to say about anything that we've talked about in this episode or previous, be sure to uh, email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. We're on TikTok. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter, at mcguffinpod. We're also searchable under letter Letterbox, where I update uh, you know, ongoing lists of what we're doing for our streaming homework. So if you have a Saturday night open and you're wondering what you should watch, you can just look at what we've reviewed um, and, uh, you know, pick something from there if it's still available. You follow me individually at my social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram at BC Cassidy. Um, you can read my reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a one-sentence review over on any of the podcast apps that you might use to listen to us, specifically iTunes and Spotify, um, which probably the most commonly used, but if you're one of those weird player.fm or pocketcast or stitcher people i think they probably have some version of a rating system there as well be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the other mcguffin staff members at the landing site mcguff.in uh and you can follow me on twitter and instagram at keith foster kid also i do uh, live improv comedy at mockingbird improv i'm part of the show improv versus stand-up uh, you can follow both of those on uh, Instagram as well. And that is the episode. We'll all fly away together one last time into the forever and beautiful sky. <laughs>